everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Workrout. And today we're back with another Oscar Rewind. We will be talking about the 37th Academy Awards, which covered the films of 1964. My Fair Lady won Best Picture, and our nominees, which we'll be talking about today, are Beckett, Dr. Strangelove, Mary Poppins, and Zorba the Greek. I think we're going to have a lot of fun talking about these, for better or worse. We might get a lot of flack, or people will just join us with how much disdain I had for some of these viewing experiences. (laughs) Wow. I'll start by saying that some of these I hadn't seen before and others I had seen before, but when I started watching one of the films in particular, I know I texted you because I just knew right away. I was like, this is going to be a really, really rough one for him. (laughs) And at that point, I didn't know which one you were talking about. But it turns out that it could have been a few of them, which is exactly what I was worried about going into this collection. (laughs) Yeah, I will say as we're moving back in time with these rewinds, I'm very nervous (laughs) for you because they're pretty long and musicals are very Mm -hmm. popular, Um, especially musicals like this. That's pretty much what the 60s were about. Yeah, going through and reading about My Fair Lady... I realized we had a lot more musicals going on. So we'll mention some of those. But also, it wasn't only the length of these movies. It was some of the subject matter that didn't age well. And I think I realized I had a lot more trouble with that and accepting that in my enjoyment of the movies. It definitely was harder for me with some of them. And as you move further back, it is crucial to consider the context of when these movies came out and try to put yourself in that time period if you're going to enjoy them at all. Mm -hmm. So the 37th Academy Awards took place on April 5th, 1965. They were hosted by Bob Hope. It was his 14th time hosting. He does hold the record for most times hosting the Oscars. Yeah, he hosted 19 times. (laughs) So he still had a few more to go. And at this ceremony, he really poked fun at the fact that British films were really celebrated. He specifically called it Santa Monica on the Thames. He said, before you can pick up your Oscar, you have to show your passport. And then as he was introducing people who were at the ceremony, he goes, Peter Sellers plays three roles and was nominated for Best Performance by a Show-Off. Julie Andrews is up for Mary Poppins or How We Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Jack Warner. (laughs) We have plenty to talk about, about Julie Andrews and Jack Warner and Audrey Hepburn and all of that for (laughs) sure. That was definitely when we asked on Twitter, most people were curious about this Audrey Hepburn, Julie Andrews showdown that took place. Mm -hmm. Also pointing out that all four acting winners were not American. And the next time this would happen would be in 2007, which was another year that we covered. This was fascinating, especially that this was the first time in Academy history, which I feel like would be much more common. Definitely. And I think a lot of times when we think of Oscar movies, still to this day, we think, you know, every year reserve a spot for a stale or stodgy British costume drama. There are always British actors in particular, I think, who get nominated and those movies will have major awards halls. Mm hmm. Also, as the Academy grows and becomes more diverse, I think we'll see this again. 
some other fun facts about these nominees here. This was only the second time that all five nominees were also nominated for Best Director, which had happened previously in 1957 and then since then in 1981, 2005, and 2008. And all five Best Picture nominees were nominated for Adapted Screenplay. We didn't Mm -hmm. have any original screenplay nominees for Best Picture. And looking at the original screenplay nominees, I think the Adapted Screenplays were way more popular, obviously. I've only seen one of them. I've seen A Hard Day's Night, but Father Goose, One Potato, Two Potato, (laughs) The Organizer, and That Man from Rio... I have not seen any of those. Those names. (laughs) One potato, two potato is jarring. (laughs) Another interesting quote that I read about the ceremony, about the non-American actors, this is from Hedda Hopper, gossip columnist. She said, no American actor won. Either the rules will have to be changed or our actors will have to try harder. And did you notice that Oscar went home with those who acted, produced, and directed good, clean, family-type pictures, proving that not only the rest of the country, but Hollywood itself doesn't go for all that overabundance of sex and stripping? Wow. I think that nicely puts us in the context, though, of like 64 specifically. As we move through the 60s, films really they take a turn. We head into the new Hollywood that we get in 67 Mm -hmm. and then in the 70s. So she's wrong with where we're headed, which is great. But at this time, yeah. I think with the idea, though, that the movies have to be pretty well-rounded and appeal to a wider audience, I think that still holds pretty true. But I think especially this year, it's maybe why Mary Poppins got in here, where... A surprising kids movie, you know, is enjoyable for everybody. Mm-hmm, exactly. And a Disney movie. So this ceremony was the last year it was broadcast in black and white. That's fascinating, actually. And as we cover some of the awards and we run through the nominations, we have those categories that will be split black and white and then color, mm-hmm. which reading through the awards, I thought, okay, we are totally in a different era here. Yeah, and I think the advent of color television and color films, I mean, they had been around for a while, but I think the Academy was catching on and this split of having black and white and color categories only happened for two more years. And then in 1967 is when it was only five per category, like in cinematography. We'll start with our Best Picture winner, My Fair Lady. IMDb description here, snobbish phonetics professor Henry Higgins agrees to a wager that he can make Flower Girl, Eliza Doolittle, presentable in high society. It was directed by George Cukor, stars Audrey Hepburn, Rex Harrison, Stanley Holloway, was nominated for 12 Oscars and won eight. It won picture, director, actor for Rex Harrison, cinematography color, art direction, set decoration color, costume design color, sound, and best scoring of music, adaptation, or treatment. Covering some precursors and just early awards, at the Golden Globes, it won Best Picture, Musical, or Comedy, Best Director, and Best Actor, Musical, or Comedy. Audrey Hepburn was also nominated for Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy, and Stanley Holloway was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. At the BAFTAs, it won Best Film, and at the New York Film Critics Circle, it won Best Film and Best Actor for Rex Harrison. Thinking of the Oscars here, though, the notable snub that we have is that Audrey Hepburn was not nominated for Best Actress. 
Was this your first time seeing My Fair Lady? Yeah, it was. And I hadn't seen the musical before, which is kind of a rule I have where I try to see the original production first because I think that gives me better context for the music and how they initially wanted to show whatever they were making. So this was my first time, and I know musicals and plays also run longer than this. Usual runtime is at least two and a half, which I love. Do you? (laughs) But there were a few things here that I wasn't a total fan of, and it really helped me in reading about the history and articles from years ago that let me accept that, like you said earlier, musicals were really big at this time, and this really grand production, which ended up making almost a billion dollars with adjusting for inflation of the box office. So I think with that knowledge, I came to terms with this being the clear winner, the expected winner of the night. Had you seen the musical or had you seen this movie before? Oddly, I had not. And I had only seen adaptations like She's All That, for instance. (laughs) This is a story that has been, I think, remade and repurposed throughout time because it's an incredibly dated premise to me of just this like wealthy man coming in and trying to help this girl who is like poor or ugly to try to like make her beautiful or make her fit into his version of society. That Mm -hmm. premise generally doesn't work on me. I, of course, knew a lot about My Fair Lady. I knew the music. I knew the iconic Audrey Hepburn costumes from it. And of course, the Eliza Doolittle character, specifically that unhinged, I will call it Cockney accent that she does. (laughs) So I knew all of that, but this was my first time watching it. And I will say that there are parts that were extremely hard to watch in light of, you know, where we are today. I would rather Mm -hmm. watch films where women aren't treated that way and aren't spoken to the way that Henry Higgins speaks to Eliza. Mm -hmm. I would rather him just leave her alone, but we wouldn't have a movie that way. (laughs) I will say, though, that I did enjoy watching it at times. I thought that the costumes were gorgeous. I loved the set decoration. I liked the music also, and I do prefer the way that these old musicals are staged compared to new ones. I like that they look dated and still just really beautiful and capture all of the dancers, their full bodies at all times. I enjoyed watching this, even though it was long. And it did, it dragged at parts, but the music kept me in it. So going back to what you first talked about, the accent, I felt that it was a lot of overacting in the first hour, which I really hated. And that was really hard for me. And... I don't know if you'll agree with this, but do you think the accent was worse and more forced than Emma Watson in The Bling Ring? Um, I think that Emma Watson's accent in The Bling Ring is worse (laughs) because Audrey Hepburn is very much acting in a way that actors did at that time. Anything you would think of today as overacting was pretty standard back then. That was kind of the style. I also find Eliza to be a sympathetic character, so it helps me, whereas... The Emma Watson character and the bling ring is just awful. (laughs) So I also read an article that had analyzed the movie and it said, which I agreed with, that Audrey Hepburn was really hard to believe as this gutter snipe that turns into this really fabulous woman. And you can see Audrey Hepburn like, you know, that's her and whatever acting she's giving or could give, I didn't think was going to come off as 
this really poor lady trying to sell flowers in the street. I mean, that's that's the hard part is that she's so stunningly beautiful, even when she's like covered in dirt. I wonder if it would have been really different, though, at the time, because at the time she was huge, too. She was already mm-hmm. an icon and it's impossible to separate. And you are kind of just waiting for the makeover to happen and to see mm-hmm. Audrey as we know her. But also at the same time, it is completely unbelievable. And you do kind of like when I first saw her covered in dirt, I just groaned. I was like, are you kidding me? Like we, (laughs) we know. (laughs) It was the least amount too. Like they could have done a much better job making her look really, really muddy and almost like the chimney sweepers from Mary Poppins. And part of the Audrey Hepburn casting, too, we can start to talk about this now. It'll definitely Mm -hmm. run like a thread through the episode. But Jack Warner didn't want Julie Andrews for the part, even though she was in the original Broadway production because he wanted to make money. And he believed that a star like Audrey Hepburn would make money. And in a lot of ways, like he was right about her making money. The movie made a ton of money. But... Mm -hmm. I think it would have been more believable if you had an unknown in that part. Of course, you know, we wouldn't have Mary Poppins and we'll talk about that, but you have two options, right? You cast an unknown and you take the the box office risk and you, you know, you get a more authentic story maybe, or you do what people would have done today, which is completely uglify the person. And then they get all this, you know, buzz and all this press, like, look at them. Like, how did they do that? Thinking about like when Margot Robbie played Queen Elizabeth in Mary Queen of Scots, when that's all people can talk Mm -hmm. about. But then you also have movies that are more campy that are known for their makeover scenes, like The Princess Diaries Mm -hmm. or Miss Congeniality. Mm -hmm. So it also takes away from it looking back at how things have been done since and with the unknown part of it yes julie andrews had done the stage version so i feel like you know she's capable but yeah audrey hepburn had already done charade love in the afternoon sabrina breakfast at tiffany's funny face and roman holiday so she was very established and they were like we need a star to bring in the money and i think that really did help them yeah Absolutely. And this movie was so popular. It was Warner Brothers' highest grossing movie at the time. It was so popular at Academy screenings that they had to add an 11 o'clock, like 11 p.m. showing that sold out. Imagine seeing this movie at 11 o'clock at night. No, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we have to talk about the dubbing. Audrey Hepburn does not do her own singing. Marnie Nixon does the singing and... This isn't that controversial to me, to be honest. At the time, dubbing was pretty popular because they wanted to, like Jack Warner, cast really well-known actresses in these parts. Marnie Nixon also dubbed Natalie Wood in West Side Story, Deborah Carr in Mm -hmm. The King and I. So it wasn't anything that was unheard of. I think it's just extra salt in the wound knowing how incredible Julie Andrews' voice is and just that... Mm -hmm. He wanted Audrey in that part. But also, My Fair Lady was the first musical movie to use any form of live recording on set because Rex Harrison really wanted to do everything live. So they had a mic on him under his tie, which apparently you can see that his tie is inflated or puffed out because of this. Did you like Rex Harrison in this movie? Not his character, but like the performance. 
Like, I thought it was fine. I feel like you might have liked him more. And maybe from, like, a Daddy Daniel Day-Lewis standpoint. <laughs> One, because... Also because Audrey Hepburn is playing 21 in this movie. Like, Eliza mm-hmm. is supposed to be 21, and she is 35 at the time, which also took me out. Lots of choices. So, listeners and you may be shocked to know that Rex Harrison doesn't do it for me. <laughs> um, yeah, I I thought about it when I was watching this because I was like, oh, normally, like, this type of role or, like, actor would totally work on me. I have an example of that in another movie that we'll talk about very soon, but... Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's similar to Daniel Day-Lewis in Phantom Thread. He specifically says he's a confirmed bachelor, which is a direct quote. Mm -hmm. But the type of speak singing thing that he's doing does not work for me at all. And that's why I trouble with the music because, I mean, I watched this a few days ago. None of the tunes are playing in my head. And I think that is troublesome when you're making a musical. Like you want people to be singing these days after. And A Hard Day's Night, Mary Poppins, both did that. They sold record-breaking albums. I'm not about to go out and buy the My Fair Lady soundtrack anytime soon. I actually have it on vinyl. It's like an antique from <laughs> no. my grandma. But yeah, oh it was popular. I mean, it was it was big at the time. I like a lot of the music in it. It's definitely not as catchy as Mary Poppins and certainly not as catchy as the Beatles, but... I like On the Street Where You Live. The way that that character kind of comes in is very random to me, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I did like that. I like the one with her dad at the end, Get Me to the Church on Time. There are quite a few where, you know, I thought they were great in the moment, but yeah, not a soundtrack I'm going to put on all the time. Mm-hmm. So to me, we can talk about a little bit of the misogyny here, which is the part I had trouble with. Obviously, it's put in there to allow Eliza to grow and become her own self but it's some of Henry's lines early on there's well not now when you've been crying you look like the very devil or why can't a woman behave like a man so cringe that was really cringe and part of me tried to you know view it satirically this idiot is obviously he's just stupid but yeah it's really really tough But the interesting thing is that I read Ebert's review and he loved this. And one of his last lines, he talked about the, quote, influence it had on the creation of feminism and class consciousness. So it's an interesting way to look at it. It kind of helped me see that it was trying to uplift Eliza in the end. But I hate the ending of this movie when he's like, where are my slippers? Oh, I got so mad. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this is the end. I am not here for this. I was like, I spent three hours and that is how this is ending. Yeah, no, it was, it really made me mad. And I was like, good God, I am so glad I live now and not back then. (laughs) We also should talk about George Cukor winning Best Director. I mentioned George Cukor on our mailbag episode as one of my favorite directors. And I'm very sorry that this is your first experience with him. I think I've seen the Philadelphia story. This isn't my first viewing of a Kukor film, but I think I can appreciate what he was trying to do. I do think, though, this, even though the movie isn't one of his best, and to some people I'm sure it is one of the best, not one of my favorites, I think it is really well directed. I think he knows how to direct a musical, and he knows how to direct stories about women, even though this one 
you know, you have that Henry Higgins character. For both of these categories that we've been talking about, which comes to no surprise, I would have given it to Peter Sellers and Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll get to we'll get to that one later. And you mentioned the sets before, which yes, I think they were beautiful and grand and were a good backdrop for most of the scenes, but I really didn't like that it looked like a set. I know like with Mary Poppins, some of that is pretty prevalent there too, but in a way that didn't take me away from knowing that every set that was done for My Fair Lady was on a soundstage. Yeah, I mean, part of it is definitely from the time. I kind of like the look of it, how it looks really staged like a play. I think that might just be preference. The ascot scene, that looks like it's on an actual stage to me. Like, it's very clear that that is a set. They're not out at the races, but I am just paying attention, I think, to the the intricate details that are there and kind of like how unrealistic and over-the-top it looks, um, especially with those costumes thrown in there. I think those are just absolutely stunning. And obviously, in the case of Audrey, I think when you think of Audrey Hepburn's film costumes, that ascot Mm -hmm. outfit with the big hat, and then, of course, one of her evening gowns near the end, those are two of the most iconic looks that she's given us. And these costumes did win Best Costumes, Design, Color, And the winner there, the costume designer, Cecil Beaton, who beat Tony Walton, Julie Andrews' husband, who did the costumes for Mary Poppins. I also read a point that Jack Warner had offered Joshua Logan to direct the movie, but he wanted some scenes to be shot on location in London, so he didn't get the job. So there was a very deliberate choice to have this look like it was done on a set, which... I get that it's an adaptation, but also it's an adaptation, so it doesn't necessarily have to look like a stage production. It's also 1964. (laughs) And made by someone who wanted to save money, clearly, and made bank. So I don't have as much of a problem with it, but I understand. But West Side Story came out a couple years earlier. Yes, but... I love West Side Story, but I think that some of that definitely looks like it's filmed literally on a stage in a theater. (laughs) Okay, fair. Do you think that anything was snubbed here, or do you think we're good? I think we're good. It had 12 nominations, which is a lot, and from there it won eight, so I think it did plenty well. I agree. Okay. And do you think today's Academy would receive this movie in the same way? Absolutely not. Today's Academy, I think this would, when you think of backlash that would happen, this would be really tough. What about you? (laughs) I think if it were updated, I think it would have a good chance. I think also with the filming it on location would help. We've talked previously about so many musical adaptations coming to the screen and if they'll have potential or not. So I think it could. It just needs to be touched up. And then if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I'd give it to cinematography, which I did think was beautiful. The colors really popped on the screen, whether it was from the set or from the costumes, the characters, and the way it captured what it was given in a way. Which Oscar would you give for this movie? I would give it best costume design color. Like I've mentioned before, I really love these costumes. I think that some of the outfits that they put Audrey Hepburn in are just glorious and very memorable. 
This is fitting also because this was really the first component I knew of this movie. Are you ready for Beckett? Not really, but it's that we need to rip that Band-Aid off. So description here, King Henry II of England, played by Peter O'Toole, comes to terms with his affection for his close friend and confidant Thomas Beckett, played by Richard Burton, who finds his true honor by observing God's divine will rather than the king's. It was directed by Peter Glenville, starring Richard Burton, Peter O'Toole, and John Gilgood. It was nominated for 12 Oscars and won one for Best Adapted Screenplay. Its other nominations were in Picture, Director, Actor for Burton, and Actor for O'Toole, Supporting Actor for Gilgood, Cinematography, Color, Art Direction, Set Decoration, Color, Costume Design, Color, Sound, Editing, and Music Score. And for its precursors, at the Golden Globes, it won Best Picture Drama and Best Actor in a Drama for Peter O'Toole. At the BAFTAs, it won Best British Art Direction, Best British Cinematography, and then Best British Costume. At the Writers Guild, it won Best Written Drama. What do we think? (laughs) As I alluded to before, this was the movie where I just knew. The second that historical scroll popped on at the beginning that's like in 1066 i knew we were just in for it (laughs) you you were really gonna struggle i liked this more than i thought i would it has great performances i really could not take my eyes off of peter o'toole in this movie i thought he was wicked and devilish and i wanted to see everything that he was up to this entire movie and this movie has like never really popped into my orbit like seeing it listed as a best picture nominee I'm sure you know I've thought of it before but I've never thought about watching this I think that it's pretty under the radar as far as these older nominees go I do love history especially this period so it was I think more in line with what I'm interested in maybe but yeah overall I was pleasantly surprised I would love to hear what you think and would love for you to share with our listeners. So the scroll at the beginning wasn't an omen for what was about to happen, but it did take me three minutes to read that first part of the scroll and be like, okay, where are we? Who are these people? Who's connected to who? And what is happening? Because history is, (laughs) that is not it for me. (laughs) Especially in the 11th century, like very, very different. And really my one contribution to this is I didn't know it was inspiration for the Canterbury Tales. At the moment when King Henry II makes Thomas Beckett Archbishop of Canterbury, that's like a huge deal. And everyone is kind of reacting to that. But yeah, I think if you maybe didn't know the like history going in or anything Absolutely with like the, no Normans, Nothing. the Normans and the Saxons and anything like that. Didn't know who a Norman was. <laughs> So I had to look that up. I had to like Wikipedia so much from that scroll before I even started this movie. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) But as we know, how I do with period pieces, especially ones that are like super actor centric, this was a no go for me. (laughs) The action was happening too slowly for me to understand what was going on or to get like really into it. So literally as I was watching, I was also reading the wikipedia description to understand what was going on (laughs) this is incredible i love learning this and just like imagining this and that was a fear of people at the time was that their 
wasn't enough action and that it was too actor writer focused Mm -hmm. and you know i love the writer movie the actor movie so it makes sense that this one ended up working for me a little bit better i think i also just really like the real life personas of peter o'toole and richard burton and how they played into this film like richard burton initially turned this movie down because he felt that the press would just lose it if he played a saint thinking about like his relationship with Elizabeth Taylor and Mm -hmm. what the media thought of him at the time. He felt that he should play Henry II instead, but I like the way that it's flipped. I think that Richard Burton actually does give a great performance here. I like how he transitions from being really cold and calculated to being this duty-focused religious man. I thought that Mm -hmm. was interesting, and I thought he did a good job with that. I will say, I thought Peter O'Toole was amazing. I love watching him. He has my favorite voice, probably, of all time. I just love hearing him speak. And his role is definitely the louder one. He has Mm -hmm. more to do. He gives a more colorful performance, I would say. But I love both of them together. Rumor has it they were both very drunk on set at all times. Most of their filming, they were drunk or hungover. Yeah, they were like heavy drinking buddies outside of set. And I think it's also, it's not funny, but the fact that Peter O'Toole and Richard Burton are two of the most nominated actors that have never won Peter O'Toole with eight and Richard Burton with seven. I think that's phenomenal that, you know, this was kind of like their piece and it fell somewhat flat. Yeah. This is one of the most losing movies ever. Even though it won adapted screenplay, it lost 11 Oscars, which puts it in the company of movies like The Color Purple, which the Academy loved when it came to nominations, but decided Mm -hmm. not to really give it any Oscars. Have you seen The Lion in Winter? No. Okay. That'll be another tough one. We'll come to that year way later. (laughs) We'll hold off on that year, but... Peter O'Toole also plays Henry II in The Lion in Winter. So I wanted to ask if you had a preference for which O'Toole performance you liked more. Do you? I prefer him in The Lion in Winter, actually. I think that should have been his Oscar. But I do think that if they wanted to category fraud here, they could have put him in supporting and he would have won. But Mm -hmm. I do kind of like how the Oscars, like back in the 60s, would actually allow to co-leads to be put in best actor i will say i did like the sets here even if it wasn't on location i think there were at least in some parts very intricately done Mm -hmm. lots of background extras lots of props and i think that helps make the castle make everything feel real i also really like the sets one interesting fact that i read was that after production wrapped on beckett roger corman met with producers And he convinced them to leave some of the sets behind for him for his filming of The Mask of the Red Death. And Hmm. he saved a ton of money that way. It made his set look way better than it would with the typical budget he would have had with that movie. (laughs) Wow. So how do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? I think they would receive it fairly well. I think, you know, if it had a little updating, obviously, with some of the sets and things like that. But an actor-focused costume drama with two heavyweight actors leading it, I think it would do pretty well. What about you? I think if this movie were 100, 110 minutes, I think it would be a much better movie. 
I think performance-wise, yes, I think they would be nominated for sure. But as a whole, I don't think it would have gotten 12 nominations. I think these movies we're talking about today, they have so many nominations, and that just doesn't happen really anymore. I mean, for multiple Mm -hmm. movies to have that many nominations, I think one of the hardest parts of the film is that it takes a while for anything to really get going, to get invested. And I think if you already have maybe an aversion to movies like this, it's even harder to to get invested in it at all. Mm-hmm. Well, that was me. <laughs> was anything snubbed? My answer is obviously no. What do you think? I also would say no. I think that it had plenty of nominations, and I'm happy both of those guys got in to Best Actor. Mm-hmm. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I would give it to Art Direction, Set Decoration. What about you? I think I would do Actor for Peter O'Toole. Just knowing that he doesn't have one, he's had so many Mm -hmm. nominations, and he really kept me engaged and interested in this movie, I would give it to him here. Next up, we have Dr. Strangelove, or How I Stopped Worrying and Learned to Love the Bomb. IMDb description here, an insane general triggers a path to nuclear holocaust that a war room full of politicians and generals frantically tries to stop. It was directed by Stanley Kubrick, stars Peter Sellers, George C. Scott, and Sterling Hayden. It was nominated for four Oscars and won zero. Its nominations were Best Picture, Director, Actor for Sellers, and Adapted Screenplay. Some precursors here at the Golden Globes, it didn't get nominated for anything, No surprise, really. At the BAFTAs, it won Best British Art Direction, Black and White, Best British Film, and Best Film from Any Source. At the New York Film Critics Circle, it won Best Director. And at the WGA, it won Best Written Comedy. What do you think of Dr. Strangelove? This is always a delight revisiting. I think the script here is, one, so much fun, but two, just so cutting and so timely. You know, it's a shame that this is another Kubrick film that got zero wins, but I think every aspect of this movie is done so well. Some of the actors were likely snubbed. We could talk about that too. I think you mentioned this being in your top three Kubrick when we did the director game. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why do you love Dr. Strangelove so much? It's the script. Like, it's just, it's so, to me, like, Piping hot, terrifying, hilarious, incredible writing. I think Kubrick is always sharp, but here he's razor sharp. And Mm -hmm. I think that we also talk a lot about how prescient Kubrick films can be and his commentary on the actors he's working with and in the time period he's working in. If we think about like Eyes Wide Shut, working with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman then, we think of... The Shining and every all of the baggage that Jack Nicholson brought there. And if you think of the way that his movies, how he operates, he is always ahead of his time, no matter what he's making. But here, he's so far ahead of his time. And despite making something that is so specifically in the Cold War, it's timeless. Like, you can watch this movie today and think about Trump and Jared Kushner and Mitch McConnell and everyone ruining the world here at this moment in time, or you can watch it specifically thinking of that time. To have this come out in 1964, it's a huge deal. It -hmm. changed policy. People were actually afraid that this was going to happen, and it's one of his masterpieces. He has quite a few. 
but I do love this one a lot. A little fun fact here is that the Doctor Strange Love full title is the longest title among all Best Picture nominees in Academy history. I love that. That's mm-hmm. great. <laughs> I think the title is very fun. I also just think, you know, of course this movie didn't win the Oscars, but I read some really interesting like things from the time about just how polarizing this movie was. In The New Yorker, they called it the best American movie in years. True satire with the whole human race is the ultimate target. Someone in the Saturday Review said that they were inclined to say that Kubrick has carried American comedy to a new high ground. But then you also had people who were saying, like, for example, in the Washington Post, no communist could dream of a more effective anti-American film to spread abroad than this one. The Air Force also issued a statement about this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Like saying they would put safeguards in place to make sure this didn't happen. (laughs) Kubrick's power. There was also a quote from the New York Herald Tribune that said, Never before has a political satire been an unqualified box office bonanza. That theme for movies has been considered strictly taboo. And yeah, I think releasing this at the height of the Cold War was very polarizing and likely why it didn't win picture. Yeah, and I read too that this movie was supposed to be released on November 22nd, 1963, the day that JFK was assassinated. But the producers like felt like no one would be in the mood for that, so they moved it to January 64, which, of course, makes sense. But in my brain, that meant, mm-hmm. okay, we got to go back to the 1963 Oscars and see <laughs> maybe what it would have done there. And... Truly, I would have been even more disappointed because it probably would have lost to Tom Jones, which some consider to be one of the worst Best Picture winners of all time. So, my God, it would have lost either way. And that probably would have been worse. (laughs) Jeez. (laughs) Let's talk about Peter Sellers. How do you feel about him in this movie? You mentioned you think he should have won Best Actor, but talk a little bit about that. He absolutely should have. He's playing three entirely different characters here with such Mm -hmm. different personalities and he's so good Mm -hmm. it's funny noticing the cutting between them because he's not playing two people in any single shot but the dialogue when he's president or the very ending when he's like holding his arm from (laughs) saluting and saying mein Fuhrer like that is just so good. And the fact that the ending was improvised, he got up out of the wheelchair accidentally, and it was supposed to be this totally different ending, and Kubrick used it. I think that is just phenomenal. It's an amazing best actor performance. Also, Columbia was so keen on him getting a nomination. Did you read this? That they campaigned him? In Best Actor, but also ran three (laughs) separate ads for each character for Best Supporting Actor. Oh, my God. Oh, I love that. (laughs) So, of course, like, great. They ended up putting him in Best Actor where he belongs, but I love how crafty that is. I thought you were going to say they ran him in Best Actor and Supporting Actor for (laughs) his different personalities. I think that would have been hilarious, too. That would have been good. (laughs) If he got the double nomination, he, like, bent the rules somehow. And how do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? I think it could go either way, just because of the political satire of it. I feel like four is still a good number for nominations, but I would like to see it win something. Because I think smarter films, too, have done pretty well recently. 
How do you think they would receive it? I am in no way comparing Kubrick to Adam Mm -hmm. McKay. I'm not doing that. But given, I think, today's Academy's love for political satire, I think they like feeling a part of the club and like on the good side and on the side that can poke fun at that and understand it. I think it would maybe get more nominations today, um, depending on the style that the movie was in. Is this Don't Look Up? Oh, my God. I. <laughs> this is going to be our movie that we somehow talk about sure every is. <laughs> And any snubs? I feel like George C. Scott could have been nominated. I feel like he's really good in it, and Kubrick was able to control him. He's notoriously hard to work with. So, I mean, I guess both of them are really in their own ways, but I would have given him a nomination too. What about you? I mean, why not cinematography black and white? Oh my God. I am realizing right now that that was not nominated. (laughs) It actually should have won. (laughs) With the plane flying near the end, I feel like that's more art direction. But I think cinematography, especially Mm -hmm. shooting in those enclosed spaces... Right, like in the war room. Like those shots look really good. Yeah. Yeah, I would give I would definitely give it more. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? Definitely adapted screenplay. This is an easy one to return to, just to listen to such comedic banter going on that really isn't done that often. What about you? I'm gonna give it to Kubrick for best director. He always has command over his vision, but here to make something like this when he made it. And I used the word precise before, prescient. I would give it to him. Okay, spit spot. It's time for Mary Poppins. Mm -hmm. In turn-of-the-century London, a magical nanny employs music and adventure to help two neglected children become closer to their father. Mary Poppins was directed by Robert Stevenson, stars Julie Andrews, Dick Van Dyke, David Tomlinson, and more. It was nominated for 13 Oscars and won five for Best Actress for Julie Andrews, Film Editing, Effects, Special Visual Effects, Best Music, Original Song for Chim Chim Cheri, and Best Music, Substantially Original Score. It had eight other nominations in Picture, Director, Adapted Screenplay, Art Direction, Set Decoration, Color, Cinematography, Color, Costume Design, Color, Sound, And then music, scoring of music, adaptation, or treatment. For precursors, at the Golden Globes, it won Best Actress in a Musical Comedy. At BAFTA, it won Most Promising Newcomer to Leading Film Roles for Julie Andrews. And at the Writers Guild, it won Best Written Musical. A quick note on those music categories. So back in this time, the score categories have always changed. And they've had like multiple categories where they've just had one original score category but during this period because of all the musicals what they would do you would have something like best music score substantially original that would be for films that could be musicals like Mary Poppins or could be films like Beckett where you just have a score best scoring of music adaptation or treatment is for musicals specifically so this is where you have My Fair Lady, Hard Day's Night, Mary Poppins. So just to clarify what those mean and what the differences Mm -hmm. are, because we don't use those today. And so we've talked a little bit about the best actress drama between Audrey Hepburn and Julie Andrews. Not that there was drama between them, 
but that Julie had played the original Eliza in the stage version of My Fair Lady. And since Audrey Hepburn was chosen for that role, Julie was free for Mary Poppins. And she took Walt Disney's offer to star as Mary Poppins, also because her husband, like you mentioned earlier, had been offered a job for the movie. And we did get a question from Tristan Clark. She said, can you talk about the Julie Andrews, Audrey Hepburn media rivalry? And I think this is an important distinction here. So there was a media rivalry between them, but they were never actually fighting. They were openly really supportive of each other. And it was really all about Jack Warner. And the media was, of course, you know, creating this narrative, pitting these two women against each other, when in reality, that wasn't what was happening at all. If you watch the telecast, you'll actually see, like, the camera will show Julie, and then it'll show Audrey. Show Audrey, and then it'll show Julie. And that really wasn't what was happening. Audrey Hepburn said... I feel very close to Julie because we're both being asked the same thing about getting or not getting the role. I feel as if we're going through the same thing. And Julie Andrews said specifically that she was looking forward to seeing My Fair Lady. She said, I can't wait to see it. I know I'll cry so hard I'll blot my eye out. So Mm -hmm. they were, of course, just saddened and disappointed by all of this, but never were they actually against each other. It was a complete creation of the media. And then the irony of everything is that this was Julie Andrews's first major live action movie and she won mm-hmm. Best Actress for it. Yep. <laughs> so when she won at the Golden Globes, she actually thanked Jack Warner in her speech, which I thought was so great. We have to include this clip. <laughs> it's so good. I love that she's so sassy <laughs> and the crowd erupts. And they cut, I think they cut to Jack Warner in the clip, too. Thank you very much for this lovely honor. My thanks to a man who made a wonderful movie and who made all this possible in the first place, Mr. Jack Warner. So, Mary Poppins, how do you feel about it generally? And then I guess in terms of other Disney films. I love this movie deeply. This was, I think... Like one of the first Disney movies I was obsessed with and watched over and over again. It was one where my parents feared that I would break the VHS tape (laughs) because I would rewind it and listen to the songs over and over again. I wanted to be Mary Poppins. I wanted Mary Poppins (laughs) to be my nanny. I was afraid of her at the same time and like still when I watch it feel that way. I think Julie Andrews is just, she's so charismatic and beautiful and perfect in that part. I can't imagine it any other way. And I love all of the music. I really like every single song in the movie pretty much. It will always have a special place in my heart forever. I love it so much. And then as far as Disney movies go, I think what's fascinating about Mary Poppins is that it shows how successful adapting stories that aren't already in your library can be. Mm -hmm. Taking a story that, yes, it existed as a series by P.L. Travers, but then making that into a Disney movie, that's something they should return to. You know, they don't need to keep spitting out all of these origin stories and pre-existing IP. They can... They can find something new, and this is what happens when you find something new and you combine things that really work, like an animated sequence with live action, with a completely new venture, but still, I think, 
remaining true to that classic Disney spirit. And this will always be one of my favorite Disney movies for sure. The sequel did not hold up for me. It didn't do it. But this one is gold, I think. I thought it had some of that charm, that Mary Poppins charm to it. But yeah, I think the original is untouchable. I think it's a lovely film. And, you know, since I watched it, I noticed that I'm like humming the songs every day. (laughs) And I think this is a great family movie because you do have like the wife who's fighting for women's rights and singing about them. And then you have the dad who's a banker and the kids who are lost in the magic of this nanny and jumping into paintings on the sidewalk. So I think there's a lot that everyone can enjoy. And I don't think we find that too often in live action movies. And I think the other part of it that's really fun is it's so beautiful to watch. There's so much happening. You have animation, you have live action, and you have this mix between the two, which keeps things so fresh in the movie and you just want to keep watching and experiencing it. Definitely. Like you said, there's something for everyone and or they don't really shy away from adult issues that are in the movie, like at first you think Mary Poppins is coming to save these children, but actually she's coming to help Mr. Banks, who really actually needs the support and to kind of find his way back. Mm-hmm. So I like that because I think today kids' movies don't really do that. Yeah, <laughs> They don't have those more complex themes in them for kids where... It's important for kids to think about things like that early on, of course, but even if they don't understand that, they can still have other things in it to appreciate. I also love the mom. I think that she's (laughs) so great. And her song about the suffragettes, I mean, my one of my all-time favorite lines is in that. (laughs) Is it mine too? Do you have it written down? Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group, they're rather (laughs) stupid. That's so good. And it's funny because I'm waiting for it to rhyme and it just doesn't rhyme. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) I had that written down too. (laughs) And something else that really surprised me was the beginning when Bird is initially playing music on the street and then he breaks the fourth wall and leads the camera to Cherry Tree Lane. I think that was Mm -hmm. so inventive and I really wasn't expecting that. Yeah, I think too, when we think about it, right, like we've compared this movie in old classic Disney to new Disney. I miss that invention, Mm -hmm. those really new and bold takes and bringing us to these magical places. That's something that I found in Mary Poppins as a kid and I found again watching Mary Poppins now as an adult. I think the music is definitely the standout here to me Mm -hmm. as an element. I think that these songs are so catchy. Like you mentioned, I've also been like humming them and kind of singing them awkwardly to myself since I rewatched it. I'm surprised though, that only Chim Chim Tree was nominated for best original song because it did win, but there are a handful of others. I also would have nominated the fact that can't buy me love from the Beatles that not getting in is so shocking, but Yeah, the fact that this was the one song for Mary Poppins. Would you have picked a different one? I don't know. It's it's hard because I think there are so many that I like. I do think this is the one I think of that's like the classic Mary Poppins song. But I also think Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious is the other big one. 
But even I love Let's Go Fly a Kite at the mm-hmm. end a lot. I love Feed the Birds. There are so many good ones. What about you? So for me, Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious and Let's Go Fly a Kite, both of those songs from the musical, which I saw, were my favorites. So I think it's kind of funny that I would have liked to have seen those here. Not necessarily instead of Chim Chim Churi, but in addition to, I think a lot of musicals now, we have multiple song nominations. And yeah, I think having two would have been so easy here. And going back to what you said about the Beatles not getting nominated, this category is so perplexing this year. Yeah. I really don't don't understand any of it and how this happened. So our other nominees, so Chim Chim Tree won, but we had Dear Heart from Dear Heart, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte from Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, My Kind of Town from Robin and the Seven Hoods, and Where Love Has Gone from Where Love Has Gone. I have no idea what What? any of those are. What? You should watch Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. (laughs) Um, You really should. And the Beatles, that movie was popular. And the soundtrack was popular. It doesn't make any sense at all. Critically acclaimed. I haven't seen it, but I know it's on the Criterion Collection. I really want to watch it. Mm -hmm. And I think that this was Walt Disney's first Best Picture Oscar nomination. I think that's pretty big because after this, we only had... Beauty and the Beast, and then Up and Toy Story 3. And especially in a year of five, in a way it's unexpected for me that Mary Poppins would be here, but I mean, I'm happy for it. It is weird when you put it that way. You know, we've talked many times about the Academy not nominating animated films for Best Picture, and we talked about that with Soul this year. But it almost fits, though, that they're foray into live action was the place Mm -hmm. where they got the best picture nomination so how do you think today's academy would receive this movie it's so hard but i think it could get a lot of nominations from the crafts and i do think if we had a major studio pivot into doing something very different it would be celebrated today so in that way i do i think i can see it picking up nominations what about you I don't even know the last G-rated movie to be nominated in something not animated. What's like a G-rated movie that's (laughs) not animated even? I can't even think of an example. So I'm kind of scared that they probably wouldn't take it as seriously or they wouldn't give it as many nominations. I mean, it had 13 nominations. It's crazy. It really, really is. It came out at the perfect time. It was the... Like everything I think combined like in its favor Mm -hmm. to get all of these nominations. And do you think there were any snubs here? I could see more acting here. Either Dick Van Dyke or Glynis Johns, who plays Mrs. Banks. What do you think? I also think like even David Tomlinson, who plays Mr. Banks, could consider him here. But I think the big one is just more songs instead of just Chim Chim Cheree. So if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would you give it? I would give it Best Actress for Julie Andrews. Without Julie, Mary Poppins is not the same. And I will always, 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 I have to be consistent here. I give more points to someone who does their own singing. What about you? I would do the same thing. I think having read about everything that happened with Jack Warner and switching, and I think Mm -hmm. that gives her so much more props. And I 
think she's fabulous as Mary Poppins. She will forever be known in a lot of her movies, but I think Mary Poppins may be the biggest role. Okay, our last one we have Zorba the Greek. Description here. An uptight English writer traveling to Crete on a matter of business finds his life changed forever when he meets the gregarious Alexis Zorba. It was directed by Michael Kakianis. It stars Anthony Quinn, Alan Bates, Irene Pappas, and Lila Kadrova. was nominated for seven Oscars and won three. Supporting actress for Lila Kadrova, cinematography, black and white, and art direction, set decoration, black and white. The other four nominees were picture, director, best actor for Quinn, and best adapted screenplay. Precursors here was nominated for five Golden Globes, but won zero. It was also nominated for three BAFTAs and won zero. What did you think of Zorba the Greek? This was the other one that I alluded to from the beginning that was really hard to get through. I think we had studied the final dance scene in an Athens class that I took in college, but I didn't know any of the context, and I kind of expected this to be a happier movie. The ending was really rough for me for a lot of reasons, but I think just overall... There's so much misogyny here, and it really didn't age well. People rave about the performances, and like everything was fine to me. What did you think about this movie? <laughs> this was, I think, in all of the Oscar rewinds that we've done, my least favorite. <laughs> it was hard to get through for me, and there were a couple of scenes and shots that I really liked. Mm-hmm. And I did actually like Anthony Quinn a lot in this. I thought he was good, but we joked to each other. We should tell the listeners that this episode should be subtitled misogyny and dancing (laughs) because my issue with this movie was, it was just like something would happen. And then it was like, Oh, we're going to solve this problem by dancing or just forget about it and start dancing. And I just know that it didn't work for me. And I'm, kind of surprised at how well it did but I guess given the Academy's love for musicals and how popular these were at the time I get it as to why it got seven nominations did Basil even solve his writer's block by the end of the movie I don't know (laughs) that was the whole purpose he came to this island to work on his father's coal mine in hopes that it would cure his writer's block and none of that was accomplished The coal mine doesn't get built. The contraption doesn't work. And they're just like, opa, let's dance. And the movie ends. I was like, thank God that's over. Another really long one, too. Mm -hmm. And I think in the case of, at least for me, My Fair Lady, you had other really strong components that made it easier for me to watch and care about what was going on. There are two prominent female characters One is Madame Hortense, played by Leela Kadrova, who wins Supporting Actress, but whose character is called an old hag and is totally disregarded. And then the other woman, who is this widow, played by Irene Pappas, and is Basil's love interest, eventually gets murdered and just left, and everybody walks away as if it was nothing. There are my issues with (laughs) the movie. (laughs) And yeah, like, again, like with My Fair Lady, I think there are some things you can not necessarily excuse, but you can look at, you know, as part of the Mm -hmm. time and as part of the story. But with this one in particular, it seemed like there was no reason for those things to happen and for those women to be treated 
that way. Whereas in My Fair Lady, the entire, you know, crux of the story and their relationship, you know, makes that, I think, more understandable and more realistic Mm -hmm. for the time. So how do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? I don't think it would go well. I think we don't we don't necessarily like have that much room for multiple musicals anymore um, to get nominated. And I think especially with the way that the women are treated, I, I don't think it would go well. What about you? If it were this movie, it definitely wouldn't be received well at all. But I don't think movies are really made like this today. I think this is another one that they would have to rebuild in order to make a film that was more palatable for audiences. I will say, though, I think like the story of a man like going to a new land to get answers is a popular Mm -hmm. story and a popular movie topic and could do well with the Academy. They would just need to revamp it for sure. And was this movie snubbed anywhere? I don't think so. (laughs) What about you? I think it got more than it deserved, actually. So, <laughs> And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I think I would do art direction, set decoration. Again, I liked the location sets of, I'm assuming, mm-hmm. a Greek island. I don't know where they filmed this, but also like the boat scene where everything is rocking around. I think that was fun. What would you give it? I would do the same, actually. Art direction, set decoration, black and white. I think that one of the like most redeeming qualities about the movie is that component. So I think that would be an easy one. Okay, so now we have a few listener questions. One from one of our guests, Bennett Prosser. He asked, what are your favorite films from 1964 that weren't nominated for Best Picture? Or how does the film year stack up against neighboring years in the mid-60s in general? I can start. Hi, Bennett. One of my movies was nominated in Best Foreign Language Film, which is The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Highly recommend. Beautiful Jacques Demy musical. And the other one is a movie called Red Desert by Antonioni. It's an Italian film that's, I would say, very industrial, but also is very colorful. And then another one that's just fun, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, is kind of the spiritual successor of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. (laughs) So if you like that one, check out this one. I think Agnes Moorhead should have won Best Supporting Actress instead of Lila Kadrova. So I would say those three. I think, Bennett, it should be no surprise that I haven't seen many films from 1964. I think based on what I read, I'm surprised that A Hard Day's Night wasn't nominated or Night of the Iguana, which was John Huston's adaptation Mm -hmm. of the Tennessee Williams play. I think Red Desert is on my Criterion Challenge for the year, and also Sidney Lumet's Failsafe, which came out this year as well. And both of those movies you mentioned, actually, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg won the Palm Door this year, and then Red Desert won the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Fest. Oh, I love that. That's great. Yeah, so there you go. Great festival films. Very, very different. Like they, If you want a bright, vivid French musical... Do the Demi. If you want Marxist, (laughs) go for Red Desert. I think, too, how does the film year stack up against neighboring years? I do think this is one of the better Best Picture lineups, actually, of the mid-60s. The following year, The Sound of Music won, which I actually do prefer to My Fair Lady, but some of these film years are just not really my cup of tea. But 64 is I think far better than 63 where Tom Mm -hmm. Jones won. 
However, we did have eight and a half that year. Federico mm. Fellini nominated and tragically lost Best Director to Tony Richardson. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. So we have a couple of questions from The Futurist. The first one, is it true that the voice Peter Sellers created for President Muffley in Dr. Strangelove was based on the speaking voice of director Stanley Kubrick? Have heard this could be the case. Well, according to IMDb Trivia... It says that Peter Sellers based the voice of Dr. Strangelove on that of famed photographer Arthur Ouija Felig, who was a freelance photographer in New York City. There is also a Reddit theory (laughs) that is based on Kubrick's voice because a lot of viewers of the movie hear Kubrick's voice, but has not been confirmed. I'll have to read my Kubrick biography and see if they talk about that in there. (laughs) And... His next question was, do you think Alan Bates should have been nominated for supporting actor for Zorba? So I like Alan Bates. I would be happy if he got a nomination, but I feel that this role didn't give him enough to do. Like the character of Basil, I just, I didn't really care about. What about you? Yeah, I would agree. When I think of Zorba, it's definitely Anthony Quinn. Mm -hmm. And I think he kind of overpowers Alan Bates's performance, but I also think he's really not doing a whole ton. He doesn't make that transformation that I expected his character to. Another question that we got, this is from Gabe. Do you think the dubbing controversy was the sole reason Audrey Hepburn failed to get a nomination, or was it also the narrative that she stole the role from Julie? What do you think? To me, no. I just don't think it was worthy of a nomination. <laughs> Partly in comparing this movie to our other roles, I think others are just much better, but also for the reasons that I mentioned before with there being lots of overacting. But when I had started the movie, I was like, oh, Audrey's obviously getting in, and I was kind of surprised that she didn't have a nomination. What do you think? I think it's a combination of those things. I think that a narrative like that is really hard to overcome, especially when Jack Warner wasn't handling the PR properly and wasn't helping her out. I don't think it's solely dubbing, but I do think that kind of compounded on the narrative that she stole the role is the big part. You know, a lot of it being that they didn't want Julie and how could they not want Julie, especially with the release order You had Mary Poppins come out, and My Fair Lady came out after that. So audiences, because Disney was pushing Julie in that movie so Mm -hmm. hard, they fell in love with her. I mean, how do you not? So I think audiences and critics were shocked that he could ever turn down Julie Andrews after seeing that performance. And then if we think about winning and just her campaign, everything kind of worked out perfectly. She had Disney's money. She was on merchandise. There were Mary Poppins dolls. Grace Kelly talked about how much she loved Mary Poppins for her daughter. And The Sound of Music came out during voting. (laughs) So she had this kind of perfect storm of factors that led to her win. But also, I think it's all Jack Warner's fault, obviously. But it's, I think, a combination of those two things, not one or the other. I think four of the nominees were pretty set in stone Do you know about Kim Stanley and Seance on a Wet Afternoon? So Kim Stanley was also British, and she won the New York Film Critics Circle Best Actress. So she had that critical support. Okay. So I think that probably pushed her in. 
now time for us to reveal our preferential ballots and as we always do decide if the academy got it right so my number five was what do you think my number five is (laughs) by the way you were talking about them i really would guess beckett yeah it was (laughs) it was hard to pick a five for this and my number four i both gave horrific reviews on letterboxd but yes my number five is beckett my number five is zorba the greek my number four is zorba the greek my number four is my fair lady oh my god wow (laughs) my number three is my fair lady my number three is beckett my number two is mary poppins my number two is dr strangelove i'm going with my heart here (laughs) over my head (laughs) yeah this is definitely how i would vote on my oscar preferential ballot so my number one would be dr strangelove and my number one is mary poppins I think, though, I will say that I would have, I think when I, you know, ranking Mary Poppins number one, I think this would have been a good year for a picture director split, you know, honoring the time I would have, you know, picking a musical gone with Mary Poppins over My Fair Lady and then giving Kubrick director feels like a good balance for me, like a good Mm win-win. If you had to split something with My Fair Lady, though, which would you split? I think I would, in that case, do Q-Core Director and either Mary Poppins or Dr. Strangelove for Picture. I'd rather keep it Director than Picture. Because I feel like Picture is like what people remember and think of. Mm -hmm. I think realistically, it would have been easier for Picture to have been My Fair Lady and then maybe Kubrick with Director. But it's so hard to say. I don't think that movie was winning any Oscars. No. It just wasn't happening. But I don't think Robert Stevenson is winning for director either. Oh, no. But I also think based on like, like we saw the previous year with Tony Richardson beating Fellini and Otto Preminger yeah. and Elia Kazan, like it just happens. It still happens today. It definitely happened back then. And then with our Twitter poll, where a lot of you submitted your own preferential ballots, the best picture winner was Dr. Strangelove. All of you continue to make better choices than the Academy. (laughs) We appreciate it. (laughs) I think this was fun. It was very different to go back to the 60s. I'm excited to keep going further back to the 50s and the 40s and tackle some different years in Oscar history. These are fun because they give you a good snapshot at what was going on um, in film in the year, politically in the year. Mm -hmm. And there are always some exciting stories. Yeah, if I hadn't done research on this year, I probably wouldn't have known about the drama between Jack Warner and My Fair Lady. So I do like that it forces me to look into these years a bit more where I probably wouldn't have watched some of the nominees, just to put it lightly. So I'm glad we did this year. I know we put off 1967 for a little bit, but I'm excited for our next one. And next time on Oscar Wilde. We'll be talking about A24's newest release, Zola, which actually came out yesterday on the 30th. I am so excited to talk about this. At this point, I haven't seen it yet, so I'm very excited to see it. And hopefully, based on reviews, I don't think I'm going to be disappointed. So I can't wait to talk about this one. It's definitely going to be a change of pace from the Best Picture nominees of 1964. And I'm excited to see how we like it. So if listeners don't know this... We actually recorded an A24 Megapod like over a year ago, and we had such trouble with editing and like I lost 
my whole edit at one point and I just kind of gave up. So we're going to be bringing that back, going through the archives. It's the notorious lost episode. We both had corrupted audio files. <laughs> it was just bad editing on both sides. So we will make sure we get it right this time. And we'll tighten things up because we don't need a three hour yes. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you next time. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. Bye.